You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Our focus today will be on verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are, all of us, left to ourselves, sinners, part of the darkness that was opposed and could not comprehend you. And only by your grace given towards us in Christ do we come before you, before your throne, and plead. We plead the good things that you've promised in Christ. We plead that you give your spirit. We plead your promise, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word to grant sight to those who are blind just as we are that they would see light just as we have, and that they would have life in your Son. And we plead that we who are your children, that our faith would be strengthened, and with our faith strengthened, that we would witness and testify to this light, and that through our testimony, testifying of the Word, that others would see light. Bless now the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen.
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Such simple words, such unfathomable truths. And this is John's style. This is how he writes. You'll see simplicity and yet complexity again and again, but perhaps nowhere more so than right here in these first five verses, in this first verse itself. It's as though Dr. Seuss has been spliced with Dr. Ransom. In case that second reference escapes you, Dr. Ransom is the protagonist of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. He's a philologist. He knows words. He not only knows words, he's been caught up into the heavens. He has heard and now can speak in the tongue of angels. He has seen profound mysteries. He is a man who as such no longer belongs to this earth. A handful of simple earthly words are used to communicate profound heavenly truths. Same words rearranged different ways communicating the transcendent and glories beyond our comprehension. Such simple words, humble words testifying of infinite glories. With a few plain words, John tells us of the one who is the word. John's Greek is among the most simple, well it is, it's the most simple in the New Testament. And yet perhaps it's John's theology that is the most complex. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You understand these words, you understand them and yet there's something incomprehensible and mysterious that they're communicating to you that you understand by them. John 1, 1 through 18 constitute the prologue of this gospel. And John intends for you to carry this prologue with you throughout every page, every paragraph, every sentence, every word. For you to, as you're reading these words, to never forget the one who is the word in every word that follows. John especially intends for you to carry, I believe, these first five verses and supremely this first verse. One scholar explains, writing, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse, verse 1. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. If verse 1 isn't true, everything that follows is blasphemy. And yet this gospel, like all the gospels, needs to be read backwards. You have to read in light of the ending. You have to take the ending and carry it with you from the beginning. This gospel, like all of them, is written such that you really have to read them twice to have read them once. You have to read the beginning, the middle, 
all of it in light of the end. One critical theologian is famous for a statement concerning Mark that has since been applied to all the Gospels. He wrote, They are passion narratives with extended introductions. Passion narratives, passion referring to the suffering of our Lord, passion narratives with extended introductions. Approximately one-third to a quarter of the synoptics, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one-third to a quarter of them concern the last days of Christ. Whenever you get to John, that's amplified. The book of John is divided into two halves. This will become really plain as we get into verse 19 and start working our way forwards at that point. The book of John is divided into two halves. And the second half, chapter 13 onwards, is often referred to as the book of glory or the book of the passion. From chapter 13 onwards, you're looking at the last days of Christ, from the Passover forward, last days. But it's also at the end of this gospel that John makes plain why he wrote it. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is why John wrote this. You see the parallels with the prologue now. John does not want you to have any mistake as to the identity of this one who is the subject of this gospel, this good news. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And from the very beginning, he wants you to know that he is the Word. But John doesn't just want you to know the identity of the one who is Jesus. He doesn't just want you to know it inertly. He wants you to know it potently. He wants you to believe these things that by believing you might have life in His name. And this is my prayer. And I hope it's our earnest prayer as we go through John that, that, oh, that the Father, Father, send Your Spirit to open our eyes that we might behold Christ And beholding Him, we might believe in Him. And that believing Him, we might have life in His name. Oh, that this would be our prayer for our children. Father, grant them sight to see the light of Christ. And seeing Him, believe in Him. And believing in Him, have life in His name. Oh, that this would be our prayer for our neighbors. That as we hear this good news of Christ, we would believe it and believing it and having this life, we would be earnest and zealous to tell them of it. And that as we tell them of it, as we see with John in this prologue, that through our witness of who Christ is, they would believe Believing they would have life in His name. Oh, that this would be our prayer that 
we would tell them and that we would bring them. We would want them to sit under Christ heralded and preached that they might believe, believing have life. Well, that this would be our prayer for any false converts who are among us. Love believes all things. I believe the best of, of all of you gathered. But I'm not so naive as to think there's not any among us who falsely believe. Whenever Judas went out with the 70, and they came back with a report of what had been done through them, it's not as if Judas was sitting over there thinking, none of that happened uh, when I was... No, you get every inclination. Judas was used as well. You don't get any, any kind of report that anyone thought Judas was suspect. Pray. As we go through John, if there are any false converts among us, false professors... That who Christ is, as He's laid before us here, would not just be assented to by your minds, but for the first time, He would be loved by your heart and trusted by your will and believing in Him, faithing Him. You would have life. Know that this would be our prayer as the saints for the saints, every one of us. Because what every one of us need more than anything, what we weak and sinful saved souls need more than anything, is a beholding of Christ. The diagnosis for all that ails you as one of Christ's children is simply this, your faith is weak. Your every misstep, your every sin is nothing more than this. It is a failure of faith. And what you need is a beholding of Christ so that faith is fanned into flame. Do not think when John says, I wrote this so that you might believe. Oh, this is for unbelievers. I can check out. You need to see Christ and beholding Him, have faith. And having faith, have life. This is life, Jesus will say in John 17, to know the Father in Jesus Christ. You want to commune with Christ? You want to know? You want to be strengthened in your faith? You want to draw near to God? You need to see Christ. And seeing Him, faith will be fanned into greater flame. Saints, pray for these things. Pray with confidence because our God has said that His word that goes forth from His mouth will not return to Him void, but will accomplish the thing for which He sent it. And He told you why He has sent this word. He has sent this word specifically. These things are written, He says, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. 
Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10 to say that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So will you cry out with me earnestly, with confidence and faith once more that our Father would send His Spirit to open eyes so that they might behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. Let's pray. Holy Father, earnestly, zealously, with confidence, because of Your Word, we cry out to You that Your Word would do what You've promised it will do. Father, save our children. Save our neighbors. Our co-workers. Our family. Give us boldness to witness of Christ. To bring them to hear of Christ. Father, for any of these dear souls that are here with us now, and those who who couldn't be today, that have covenanted with this body, but they have not truly covenanted with you by the blood of Christ. Father, Grant them faith. May they behold Christ and believe in Him with all that they are and believing have life. And Father, for we, your weak and sinful children, grant us the eyes of faith that we might see Christ more clearly Beholding Him believe, and believing be conformed to His image, and commune with You, know You, reflect You, glorify You. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, Amen. In the beginning, Matthew begins with the beginning of Israel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And working from Abraham, works forwards to David, to Joseph. Mark is about action. He begins with the gospel in action. And the ministry of John the baptizer. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, wham, he hits you with John. Luke begins with the eyewitness testimony of the good news. He opens telling us, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. 
But John takes us back to the beginning from whence all beginnings stem in the beginning. For the Hebrew, the first words of any Old Testament book are the name of that book. So, for the Hebrew, in the beginning doesn't just make them think, huh, that sounds like Genesis 1-1. Whenever he says, in the beginning, they think, Genesis. It would work something like, open your Bibles to in the beginning, chapter 1. They heard that, they think Genesis. In the beginning, the word was. Whenever God wove the warp of time and the woof of space together, when creation was called into being out of nothing, the word was. John is not intending to tell you that the word's existence coincided with that of creation. He's not telling you that his being was simultaneous as that of creation. He's telling you that in the beginning, before any of that had occurred, the word was. He was pre-existent. And to pre-exist time takes you into the mysterious realm of eternity. This is a statement as to the word's Eternality. And so we have two options before us. D.A. Carson puts them this way. Because this word, this divine self-expression existed in the beginning, one might suppose that it was either with God or nothing less than God Himself. John insists the word was both. The word was With God. The word's distinct from God in one sense. So that there can be an intercommunion and a fellowship of persons. That's what is is communicated by the word with. There is a fellowship and a communion between the one who is the word and the one who is God. There's a, a communion between the word, God the Son, and God, God the Father. Jesus makes plain what's said here whenever he prays to his Father in John 17. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. That's the same witness that's being talked about right here. In your presence. The word was with God. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. From all eternity, in an infinite delight and exchange of love and glory, the Father, Son, and Spirit existed. There's not only an intercommunion of distinct persons, there's a unity of essence. The word was God. The first use of God refers to The person, God the Father, distinct from the Word. The second use of God refers to 
the essence, the shared essence that both the Father, the Son, and also the Spirit all have. Distinct persons, unified essence. Three subsistences, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, one name, one essence. The statement, the word was God, that Jesus is God. That statement is reaffirmed in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. And I believe that's a reference to the Godhead. God. No one's ever seen God. The only God. Now how is God being spoken of here? Who is at the Father's side. That's the word. Who's become flesh. No one's ever seen God. The Godhead. No one's ever seen Him. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, other than these two instances, and moving forward to John 20, 28, where we see Thomas before the risen Christ, addressing the risen Christ saying, My Lord and my God. Outside of those bookends, Jesus is nowhere in between explicitly referred to as God in that precise way. And don't think of it as if John has forgotten what his aim was. Everywhere in between, he is putting forth testimony that he is God. And so by bookending it this way, he's shouting all the more to us the identity of the Word who is God. He was God. He is God. Consider it this way. The preexistent eternal Word is God. John 1.1. John 1.18. The incarnate Word is God. John 20.28. The risen Christ is God. From beginning to end. Eternal Christ was God. Incarnate Word is God. Risen Christ is God. Jesus is God. But why refer to Him as the Word? Outside of John's prologue, verses 1 through 18, John will never again refer to Jesus as the Word in this gospel. Outside of this gospel, Jesus is referred to as the Word only two more times, and again by John. John 1.1, the Word of life. Revelation 19, the Word of God. Now, some speculate that what John is doing here is drawing on Greek thought. Word, logos, and the Greeks would regard the logos as the logic or the reason that underlies all that is. Rather impersonal, sounds a lot like the force. I don't think that is what John is drawing on at all. He's already told you what he's drawing on when he says word, whenever he said in the beginning 
John is drawing on the Word of God to tell you about the Word of God. That's a source. God said, let there be light. Read that prologue again. Notice all the references to light. Notice all the kind of creation language. And you'll see what he's drawing on whenever he says word. The word of God is powerful. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. But also the word of God is revelatory. It's that by which God makes Himself known. So what you hear of um, in Isaiah 38, 4 is something that resonates with all the prophets. The word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. It's that by which God discloses Himself to His people. But it's also not only powerful and revelatory, it is redemptive. It is that by which God delivers His people. Psalm 107.20, He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The word of God is powerful, it's revelatory, it's redemptive. Now in all those Old Testament texts, it is the written word that's being referred to. But behind and above all of them is the living word, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, they testify of me. He is the living Word. I think Arthur Pink is very helpful. He highlights the revelatory aspect. Most people do in defining what it means for Jesus to be the Word. But as the revelatory word, what he's revealing is, is this power, this redemptive power. Pink is helpful when he writes that the word is not only the revealer of God, but God himself revealed. His power, his might, his glory, his redemption. And John puts all this together once more in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Why the repetition? I think it's because verse 2 transitions you. So verse 1, you're thinking of the Word in relation to God. In verses 3 through 5, you're thinking of the Word in relation to creation. And verse 2 sets you up for this transition because no Hebrew would have doubted God created. In the beginning, God. No one doubts that. But now we've got the Word who's with God. And what He wants to add to that is that this Word who was with God, well, verse 3, all things were made through Him. So creation is from the Father and it's through the Son. 1 Corinthians 1.6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. That all things are through the Son is made plain by both an affirmative 
and a negative statement. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Why put it both ways? Consider this. The Jehovah's Witness want to downgrade the word. That he's a created being. The chief and supreme of all created beings through whom all other beings were created, but a created being, an angelic being nonetheless. And so the new world mutilation reads that the word was a God, lowercase g. The word was a God. But if you're going to play with the Bible in that manner, you better be very clever and extremely consistent. Because the word as a whole has the same testimony. You edit any one point like that, you better carry it through all the way. The problem they run into is that they leave verse 3 basically intact. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here's this category of all made things. And Jesus doesn't fit in that box, not even as one who was first made and then made everything else. He doesn't fit in that box because he is the one who made all things that were made. Nothing is in this category except what he put there. He's Lord over it all. This is exactly what the author of Colossians is communicating when he refers to Jesus as the firstborn of creation. That phrase is meant to communicate that he's the one with rights. He's the one who has that inheritance. He's the one who's preeminent over it all. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. The firstborn of all creation. For, why is he the firstborn? For By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And now you see, he is not only creator, he is the sustainer. Colossians, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 1 Corinthians 1.6, Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Or, verse 4, in him was life. The life was the light of man. In him was life. The word has Aseity. It's one of my favorite attributes of God. We talk about it far too little. He has aseity. It means he has of himselfness, self-existence. He is independent. He needs nothing. There are seven I am statements that we'll encounter in our study of John. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. And with all of those, you sense how utterly dependent man is on the word who is life for spiritual life, with all of those. 
But in addition to those seven I am statements, you have seven I am statements that are absolute. There's no predicate. It's not I am the bread of life. It's simply I am. Seven of them, eight of them, depending on, there's two of them real close together if you number those separately. But I think he meant for those to be taken together. There's just too much coincidence there. Seven I am statements with the predicate, seven of them absolute. And that, all seven of them are meant to be an explicit reference to the divine name of God, Yahweh, derived from his statement to Moses, I am who I am. Who will I say has sent me? I am has sent you, Yahweh. That all of those are meant to be a reference to the divine name, well, that's debatable. But that none of them are meant to be a reference to the divine name is incomprehensible. Jesus is the I am. In him is life of himselfness. I am. He's pure being, absolute being, absolute isness of himselfness. This is why the author of Hebrews, you see how the doctrine of God's immutability stems from this? He doesn't change. He just is. He's pure being. This is why the author of Hebrews can tell us what you could only expect to hear of God as being true of Christ. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Him is life. The life that is in Christ is the light of men. Light and life are parallel here such that they're basically, in this instance, synonymous as they are in Psalm 36.9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Primarily, the light that is this light of men stemming from the life that is in Christ, I believe has reference to creation, not redemption. It would be wrong then to think this is referring to creation, not redemption. It would be wrong then to think that this refers to physical life, not spiritual life. Man is a physical, spiritual hybrid. When you die, your body, you will either then exist, exist, have life, in heaven or hell. And at the resurrection, there will be both a resurrection of the wicked and a resurrection of the righteous to eternal bliss or eternal woe. But when you die, there's still a life. And that life is had in Christ. Nowhere else. You don't get it of yourself. You don't self-perpetuate that. Genesis 2.7 Yahweh God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Your life, the whole of it, is not only given by Christ, it is sustained by Christ. We do not possess aseity. 
That's why it's not an attribute we ever talk about because we cannot ascribe it to any other than God. We can talk about power and then we can talk about the omnipotent. We can talk about knowledge and then we can talk about the omniscient. We can talk about presence and then we can talk about the omnipresent. But we, none of us, have anything like a saity. We can say we will exist eternally from this point on, but even our existence then is dependent. He has of himselfness. In him is life. With this, while this refers to creation, I think it is setting you up. All this creation language is preparing you for new creation language. The longing of our hearts. The one who will crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse and bring blessedness once again and a new creation. And that that is meant to be evoked is because whenever he starts to talk about Darkness, darkness has a moral tone to it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is darkness, but the light stands supreme over it. Or does it? The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Overcome could be translated, well translated. It's well translated here. It could also be well translated as it is in the New American Standard and the King James as comprehend. Or other modern translations might have understand. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it, comprehend it or does not understand it. And this can be affirmed. As true in light of passages like John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Or how often is it throughout this gospel and all the gospels you see this spiritual blindness, darkness, that they cannot see what is right in front of them and blatantly clear. Darkness in the world you see associated in a passage like John 3.19. Then you realize, wait, this darkness that's associated with the world, find in John 16.33, Jesus saying, I have overcome the world. Overcome, comprehend, which way should we intend it? Which way should we interpret this? And I think the answer is, both. You'll see John fond of depth of meaning, irony, double meaning. You already have seen it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God is being used to refer to God the Father. And the Word was God. Not telling you that the Word is identical to God the Father in that instance. He's telling you that both God the Son and God the Father are God. Shared essence. There is a darkness that does not overcome the light. Even though this darkness does not comprehend the light. The Word does not enter His creation as a defeated ruler. To take back what has been lost. 
He enters it as one the darkness has never overcome him. He has held it in check for his sovereign purposes. And it's at this juncture that he intends not simply to obliterate the darkness, but to transform the darkness. This double intention of meaning, I think, is made clear by John in the, in the prologue when he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The darkness does not comprehend. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, Here's the overcome part being demonstrated. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen. Why have we seen? Not because of our birth, not because of our blood, not because of our will, but because we've been born of God. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice the plot line that's now set up for you in this, these first five verses. Eternity. Creation. Life, light, darkness, overcoming, victory. You see how this plot line with creation and the fall has set you up to think about what the Word is going to do in redemption. As we gaze in the months ahead... At the Word become flesh. Don't let His enfleshedness blind you, deceive you from His eternal glories. Rather, let them be the means by which it is conveyed to you. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His enfleshedness is not meant to veil any of this, it is meant to communicate all of this. He does not refer to Jesus as God after verse 18 until chapter 20 where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. But everywhere in between there, he is wanting you to, in seeing Christ, see His glory. So that every time you hear Jesus, you hear Yeshua Jesus meaning Yahweh saves. Not Yahweh saving through Him, but Yahweh saving us. Every time you hear Jesus here, Yahweh saves. The Word become flesh. Let me close backing up to verse 14. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Because I think only Son really is helpful in getting at exactly what it means that He is the Word. Only Son. 
what you have in the ESV and so many other modern translations as only son, slightly longer in the New King James, King James, New American Standard, Legacy Standard Bible, slightly longer. There you have the only begotten son. There's a lot of scholarly debate there, even among very solid Christians. You'll find arguments for only son among such stalwarts of the faith in recent times as James White, D.A. Carson, others. Now, both of these speak to sonship. Only son, only begotten son. Both of them speak to sonship. Both of them speak to unique sonship. Only. But begotten, begotten adds something more. It's something that troubles some. As soon as you say begotten, well, that sounds contradictory to what verse 1 was telling us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it shouldn't bother you anymore to think of the Word as the eternally begotten Son than to think of Him as the eternally spoken Word. Word has just the same kind of connotations that you can bring into it as begotten son does. As soon as you've said son, the idea of being begotten, I would say, is implicitly there. C.S. Lewis explains, showing how there's an analogy, but there's not identity between God's begetting and man's begetting. He writes, When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. This is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. You fathers beget sons after their image. You had a beginning, they had a beginning. God begets a son After his image. God has no beginning. His son begotten in his image. Has no beginning. Mystery? Absolutely. But what God is conveying to us. Is what Hebrews made plain. He is the image of God. For the son to be God. He must be all that God is. Or else he is not God. And God is eternal. And so the begotten Son is, as the theologians have long said, an eternally begotten Son. This is what we refer to as the eternal generation of the Son. There never was a time when He was not begotten of the Father. In other words, the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is why we confess with the saints of old, the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. You hear John all over that? 
Through Him all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Behold the Word, who for our salvation became flesh and believe. And if you would believe, there is this promise. You will have life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's, the, that's why John wrote it, right? So what I hope you're, the connection I hope you hear now is when John said, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When you hear Son of God, you are thrown back to chapter 1 and verse 1. What does it mean to say He's the Son of God? It means He's the one who in the beginning was. And He was with God and He was God. That's what it means when He's the Son of God. Believe that He's the Christ, the Son of God. Believe that He's the one who lived perfectly to be the righteousness of any who would trust in Him. That's what faith Believing means trust Him. It's this act with your mind, with your heart, with your will. Trust Him. If you behold Him, if you see Him, abandon all trust in anything else. Throw yourself in trust upon Him. The one who lived to be your righteousness. and The one who died to bear judgment for the sins of those who trust in Him. You do that. You have this promise. You'll have life. You have this promise right here in the prologue. If you would believe in the Son, you'll be adopted as sons. But to all who did receive Him, what does it mean to receive Christ? Who believed in His name. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right. This is the language of adoption. It's a legal sphere. You believe in the Son, He gives you the right to become sons of God. There is the only begotten Son. Marvel of marvels. Because the Word became flesh and lived and died and rose. That if you would believe in Him, you will be adopted as sons. Such that Romans 8 tells you, you are co-heirs with Christ. As far as the inheritance is concerned, as it's spoken of there, no distinction between the only begotten Son and the adopted Son. Equally sons in regards of the inheritance. Let's pray. Father, in light of this staggering promise and the glories of the Word who became flesh, Father, in light of Your Word, I pray there's light. And with that light, there's believing. And with that believing, there is life. Every soul here, created and sustained by the Word, every one of us, Oh, that there would be light. Not just light that we're blind to, that's 
that we're sinning against, that there would be light from your word, testifying of your word who became flesh, that there would be light and there would be a beholding of Christ and that with that beholding there would be a believing and that believing there would be life. We cry out earnestly, but we cry out with confidence, Father, knowing your word will not return to your void. Your word will not return to your void. Your son did not raise void. He rose having purchased a people for God. And you intend that people to be brought out, called out by your word. So we trust. Oh, Father, I hope there's renewed confidence by us all. Just in the heralding and the preaching of your word, there's renewed confidence. You will do this. We believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen it more and more. But Father, how can we not? Because of your grace and your goodness, in light of such testimony, how can we not believe? Let us go forward believing and having this life, sharing and testifying to the one who is our life. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.